Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel 14. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up today the last uh, chapter in our section in 1 Samuel, the second section. Uh, for those of you, um, some of you might know, for the last four years, I've been trying to finish up my PhD in theology, uh, and so uh, as a result, I would spend some time in Louisville, Kentucky, where my school is located. So about twice a year, I'd fly out for a few weeks at a time to get my coursework done. And what's, what's Kentucky known for? What's it famous for? Yes, good. First hour, they're like, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm like, no, no, it's the Derby. When you think of Kentucky, you think of the Kentucky Derby. Now, I was never a horse race person, but um, I, I didn't realize that the Kentucky Derby, oh, I guess horse races, they're, you know, what's the tagline? It's the most exciting 120 seconds in sports. It's two minutes, two minutes for the whole thing. I would say it's like the Super Bowl or the Indy 500 where you actually get to enjoy, but it's just gates open, they're done, you go home. Well, in Kentucky, they enjoy their steeplechases, so they have a lot of regional ones. And when I was out there, I think two years ago in May, so I always go out for my coursework in May, and the, the conversation inevitably goes around the, the Derby or one of the regional steeplechases. And this one in particular near Louisville was of great interest because a local underdog was, was pitted against and expected to win against the regional champ and get the, get, get the cup, I guess. And as they were coming around the bend, if you know anything about race, whether it's horse racing or any kind of racing, you know the bends are really important coming around the corners. If you take the corner too wide, those extra few feet translate to seconds that will lose you the race. If you cut a corner too soon, you have to course correct because your angle is not going to make you through the turn. So coming through the turn, it has to be really a perfect arc to get through. Well, these two horses were going neck and neck, and they're not sure if it was the, the underdog or the champ, and there was some, a little bit of uh, speculation, but one of them, the horses had collided and clipped each other. And just at the speeds they're going and the gallop, both jockeys were flung from the horse a mere 10, 15 yards from the finish line. You can imagine that the, the crowd was disheartened because um, they were hoping that their underdog had a chance to win the cup on this one. But what had happened was the, the regional champ was the first bounded up, remounted, charged, and crossed over the finish line. A moment later, the, the, the underdog came through. So needless to say, it was a huge surprise to the jockeys when the crowd erupted in cheers and hollers because they saw what the jockey only too late realized that when he remounted, he got on the wrong horse and went right over the finish line with the underdog's, hor or under underdog's horse. That jockey in an instant realized what Saul is slowly beginning to realize right now in, in, in these chapters. And that is, if we don't do things by the prescribed manner, whether it's a, a derby race or a steeplechase or living according to the way God wants, there's victories are often clouded by defeat and our successes can actually be pretty sad. You see, see, God wasn't looking for, and never has he been, nor does he now, he's not looking for the best, the brightest, the most able and capable. Actually, sometimes they're the worst in terms of God's economy, because they don't need God. God is often looking for the person who just says, look, I can't do this. I, I understand with all abilities or strengths that I might have, I don't have what it takes. I need something else. It's that element. It's the, one of the engines of true biblical faith that says, I need something that I cannot provide and only you can. 
And Saul is beginning to realize that there's got to be a certain way to do things in God's economy. And when we don't do them, what can even be a success can be, turns out to be a failure. And that's what we see. That's the kind of the tone of 1 Samuel 14. Uh, let's pray, ask God the blessed teaching of his word, and we're going to jump into what is kind of a long chapter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our hearts have been reoriented to you. Maybe for some of us, for the first time this week, we've paused and sang words of eternal truth. So easy to get caught up in the things of this life and this world and forget that we, have, we live in a whole other reality than the one we see and perceive. It's the reality of faith. It's the reality of your economy. We thank you that we get reminded week in and week out that that's the one that counts. Bless the teaching of your word. Give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Samuel 14, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. If not, you can scooch over to somebody who has one. They'll be glad to share. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. It's full of these great, vivid details that make the Bible come alive. And if you've ever read it, if you've read 1 Samuel 14, like we, we really encourage you to read the passage before that we study on a Sunday um, so that you come prepared. It's like reading a Tom Clancy or Stephen Pressfield novel, right? If you're familiar with it, there's all this military intrigue. It's, it's, it's basically a, a military battle of these underdogs fighting in an, an immense force. There's these desperate and brave plans, although they're not sure that they're going to work out. There's these very pretentious and, and arrogant superior officers who are contrasted with these noble and cunning foot soldiers. It's all there and so exciting. Really, 1 Samuel 14 is really just a military battle. Uh, and, and yet, who would think that in a chapter that was basically describing a military skirmish or battle would have so much to teach us about gospel, the gospel and our lives, but it does in the victories and defeats and the successes and failures of Jonathan and Saul. Uh, and so we're going to look at that and we're going to be amazed at what it has to teach us. So I'm going to back us up. Uh, a little bit to last week. I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 13 to give us a little bit of a context, and I'm going to read through uh, chapter 14 and verse 5. Here it is. Chapter 13, verse 23 ends by saying this, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father, Saul, who was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. That's important. We'll get to that in a little bit. The son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, who was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Senna. The one crag rose on the north in, the front, in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibba. Okay, let's stop there. Because our particular passage is so tied and wed to the topography of the land, I think it's a good idea to, get, to give you a visual sense of where it is and what it is we're talking about and looking at. So let's start at the 10,000-foot level. Um, there we are. We're looking at a picture of a snapshot of the globe, and, and you can see on the bottom, you see the modern country of Egypt. On the top, we have the modern country of Turkey. 
Over to the left, we see with that arrow point to the modern countries of Greece and Italy, and then to the right, the modern country of Israel with an arrow pointing towards the center. The black lines you see are, are at this distance are basically the, the tribal designations of the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's zoom in a little bit closer here. So we're looking at now Israel, just the center portion of Israel, and all these different colors represent the tribal allocations to all the tribes of Israel as dictated in the Old Testament. You see the arrow pointing to an orange area that says Benjamin. And maybe if you can see, there's a little bit of red writing in there. Basically, everything we've been studying in 1 Samuel since uh, September when we started has taken place just on this, what's called the Central Hill Valleys or the Benjamin Plateau. That's that one area. With very few exceptions, you can see on the, the left, there's a city called Ashdod and Ekron and, and, and Joppa, I think. Those were the Philistine cities that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Almost everything exclusively handle, uh, takes place in that land. Let's zoom in a little bit closer. So here we have a photograph uh, of the, the Benjamin Plateau. Now, if you know anything about strategy, you can immediately recognize that the advantage that the plateau has is that it is elevated above everything else. It's the higher ground. And if you know anything about strategy, you always keep the higher ground. When you have the higher ground, right where we're at in the Benjamin Plateau, as you can clearly see on a clear day, you can see armies coming in from way far off. You can see people retreating. You have a whole lay of the land. Strategically, nothing's going to happen in this area without you knowing about it. And the reason it's even more important on the slide behind us to the East of the Benjamin Plateau, it cuts off into the Dead Sea. So if you own the plateau, you've effectively cut across the main transport route of the nation of Israel, which is the main transport route from Africa to Europe, which is another reason why Israel was always a contentious and fought for land, let alone just within Israel. Now let's zoom in even closer. So there's me and my wife many, many years ago on the Benjamin Plateau. We're standing on the, the uh, thought-to-be tomb of the prophet Samuel. In Hebrew, that's Nevi Samuel, uh, the prophet Samuel. We believe that's where he is buried. And so behind us is, is the, the valley that we're, we're talking about this morning. Let's zoom in even closer. So you can see, I've put some words where it says the Hebrews and Saul, this, that's on this side, that's where Saul and the people of Israel would be situated. And then where you see in red, the Philistine garrisons pointing a little bit to the red or to the left, it's just around the corner of that kind of valley, that, that cliff that you can't see. We're gonna try and zoom in one more time. So you can see a little bit more clearly, that's the same kind of gorge we've been looking at. And we have one last photo. So I've expanded the center to show you that that is the gorge, that's the riverbed. In Aramaic, it's, it's the Wadi Suwanet. That's Bozes and Sena. That's the, the, the very rocky crags that 1 Samuel 14 is describing. So this is, the reason I take time to talk about this is this is real life. This is not mythology. This is not things that were just created out of whole cloth. These were actual events in actual places, and that's that. So we can move on from there. So, so that's kind of the land that we're talking about. You get a sense of what it looks like. And you remember the last couple of weeks, this whole battle, this constant battle between the Philistines and the Israelites for the Benjamin Plateau. If you were paying attention, you saw in chapter 13 early on, Jonathan won a victory, took out one of the garrisons. Uh, and then the Philistines would marshal up their troops again and establish another garrison. Then Saul would panic and, and muster up the troops at Gilgal, and they were waiting to take over the garrison. But then uh, Samuel didn't show up, and they started to panic. You remember all this. This is the, the back and forth of skirmish warfare. 
This is the reality of, of real living faith taking place in actual events in history. And by the time we get to Samuel 14, you recall from last week, uh, now Samuel didn't show up when he finally did. He and the king had a falling out. Samuel declared that Saul has been rejected by God and, and basically leaves, leaves the, the, the Israelites on their own. And now the Philistines were sending out raiding parties, effectively cutting off the reinforcement route and the supply route of the Hebrews, now stuck on the plateau with one of the main forces of the Philistines just two miles ahead of them. If you're Israel, this is not a good place to be yet again for the nation of Israel. They keep finding themselves in these situations as if God is trying to get them to learn a lesson, but they never, tend to, they never seem to learn the lesson. But as we roll into the 14th chapter, things start to look markedly different. As we just read in those five verses, we hear of a, of a new plan between Jonathan and his armor bearer. We read again about the people, Saul and Ahijah, and we hear about this place, this, this uh, Bozes and Senna. Now, as always, when God begins to move, he, he doesn't use institutions and movements and establishments. God looks for the heart of a man or a woman, a heart of a man or a woman who's just willing to trust God to do something. And we see that man, it's Jonathan, the king's son. And other than the fact that he's related to the king, there's very little that's alike about the two. Jonathan is constantly moving, and we see, and we're going to continue to see, Saul is constantly sitting as he is here. He's sitting. We saw that graphic on that side of the, the, the cliffs. He and his 600 men, he and Ahijah, the grandson of Eli, the high priest, it's almost a stalemate. The, the, the Philistines aren't coming forward. The Israelites aren't taking land. They're stuck. Similar to another stalemate that you might recall from 1 Samuel 17 that we'll look at in a few weeks. It's as if the writer was trying to position Saul as always being in a stalemate, always not able to do anything, and always with the Philistines taunting the people of God. It's almost as if Saul has to get used to being ineffective and being taunted by God's enemies. In 1 Samuel 17, it wasn't necessarily an army of them. It was one particular Philistine, a big one named Goliath. But the point is, Saul, who is seen constantly as this man who's just always relying on himself, always seems to be stuck. But Jonathan, a man, a young man of faith, is moving. You see, he seems to remember what maybe his father has forgotten. When Saul became king, twice Twice, God said that this king was to smite the Philistines and free the people of God from the Philistines' control. Do you remember that? Chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 16. Saul's job was to deliver the people of God against the Philistines. But constantly we see him sitting in a stalemate, ineffective, unable to do anything. And so his son is on the move. And he tells his armor bearer, let's go find a way. Maybe we can get across and surprise the Philistines. And so unbeknownst to them, as they're exploring this, this riverbed, they find this, this rocky pathway that leads them right up to where the Philistines are encamped, a perfect ambush. What's interesting about God's word is that, as I said, it's not made up myth. It's rooted in history. In November of 1918, uh, the 60th Division of the, of the British Army, if you know anything about um, 
military history. My dad was a career soldier, so I'm a military history nut. Uh, they were fighting, the Britons were fighting the Turks in Palestine. And uh, the 60th Division, commanded by General Allenby, were assigned to get the Turks out and free Palestine, but they were at a stalemate. They couldn't make pass because of all the rocky terrain. Let me read to you from General Allenby's personal journal, which was published in 1934, uh, entitled Romance of the Last Crusade. This is what the general writes. Mukmas was on a rocky hill. The brigade outpost line was on a chain of hills, too, and between us and the enemy ran a deep valley. A frontal attack was finally decided upon, that is, supported by artillery and machine gun fire. The brigade was to advance down into the valley just before dawn and take Mukmas from the front. Now, Allenby is basically recognizing this is a no-win situation. We've got to break the stalemate, and the only way to break the stalemate is basically to rush the Turks. They know it's going to be a slaughter, so he puts that note, we're going to support our men with artillery and machine gun fire, but it's, and we're going to go at dawn so that the light was better in their favor. Well, the major brigade, the, uh, one of the brigade majors, uh, Vivian Gilbert, said, hey, Mukma sounds familiar. Allenby goes on to write that Gilbert read the night before the attack from 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and they immediately made the connection. They dispatched, dis dispatched scouts, found the gorge, and saw that it was big enough for a single British company to pass through. This is what he records here. This is now, this is uh, Gilbert's words. We climbed the hillside and just before dawn found ourselves on the flat piece of ground before Mikmash. You see, the, the, the ancient city of Mikmash was renamed Mukmas. And they didn't re realize that at first until uh, um, Vivian Gilbert remembered, he said he knows these biblical stories, and he assumed that Mukmas was Mikmash. The Turks were sleeping so safe in their secure surroundings, and when they awoke and found that they were surrounded by the British army, they fled in disarray and disorder. The point is, what we read and so easily can think of as their Sunday school stories, they're actual reality. And there were men in history, particularly in November of 1918, who reading this passage said, we got to find this gorge, and found it. And in an almost very similar strategy, won a battle. So here's our situation back at 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, I think, we can, I think God wants to move. Let's go over to the other side and see what happens. Jonathan and his armor bearer exercise extreme faith. Saul and, and the Israelites almost re represent a rejected group of men. You notice it talks about Saul, who would, we just learned last week was rejected by God. And for the first time, the writer includes a man named Ahijah, who's related to Ichabod. Now, let me connect the dots for you. You remember in our study of the early chapters of 1 Samuel, the day Phinehas died, his wife gave birth and to a son named Ichabod. This is his nephew. So years have passed later, and we're still hearing about the rejected line of Eli along with the rejected king. What's the writer doing? He's saying, look, a life that depends on itself a life that depends on itself rejects the sovereignty and love of God. That life will be rejected. And here we have a rejected king and a rejected priesthood, contrasted with this young man of great faith. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. So Jonathan said to the young man carrying his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. 
for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You love the faith of Jonathan. Nothing can hinder God from saving, whether it's by many or by few or by just two. Let's go over and see. And his armor bearer has just as much faith. Verse 7, he says, And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. It's refreshing to hear the Jonathans in our lives. Look, the situation's crazy. There's a slim chance this is going to work. But you know what? God is amazing. God is awesome. Nothing prevents God from delivering. Let's roll the dice and see what he's going to do. Now, maybe for Jonathan, his uh, morning devotions was Judges 6 and 7, right? Familiar with Judges 6 and 7? It's the narrative of Gideon, who instead of having an army of 10,000, God whittles it down to an army of 300 and takes, off, takes on the Moabite army. And Jonathan says, if God could do it with them, he could do it with us. It's the same God. Let's go see what he's going to do. And he goes across. You know, there is one parallel, and, and maybe this is a dangerous application of maybe how not, how not to read the Bible, but it worked out for Jonathan. One thing he shares with Gideon's tactic is it's, it's completely crazy. So notice in verse 8, then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. So let's not have the element of surprise here. We're just going to make ourselves known. And then look at 9 and 10. If they, the Philistines, say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So basically, here's what Jonathan is saying. Let's go over and see what God's going to do. And this is going to be God's sign. If they tell us, hey, stay in your, we're going to leave our strategic position and come out to the field to meet you, then we're not going to fight. But if they tell us, hey, you leave your strategic position and come to us on the open field, then that's how we know God's going to win for us. We're gonna, that's how we know God wants us to do this. You think about what the armor bearer is thinking. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> Let me get this straight. If we have to give up our strategic position, that's God's plan. If they have to give up the strategic position, that's not God's plan. Yes, let's go. That's basically what's happening here. Now, why do we see this very unusual conversation? Because Jonathan's presented as this brilliant tactician, but all of a sudden with this kind of a harebrained idea of discerning whether or not God wants them to act or not. I think this is the point. I think the writer is trying to reinforce this point about what living faith is about. You see, it's not the brilliance or foolishness of Jonathan that matters, or for any of us for that, for that sake. It, it's not the brilliance or foolishness, but it's the faith in God that God is powerful and God can move that counts. And we see it right here, living here, that it's not the brilliance of the man or the foolishness of the man that God will choose to use. Sometimes God uses brilliance. Sometimes God uses foolishness. It's not the idea to make it one or the other. The point is, Jonathan had a genuine faith that God's name and reputation was on the line and he wanted to do something about it and God was going to do whatever he was going to do, whether it was a brilliance or foolishness. It was faith, a living faith that made the difference. And we see it played out right here, even in their battle plans. See, Jonathan trusted God. He said, look, armor bearer, may, may, you notice that? Jonathan said, he may do this, he may not do this. 
But how are we ever going to know until we put ourselves at his disposal? I love what we see in Jonathan. We can understand why Jonathan plays such a huge role in really shaping the monarchy. Yes, armor bearer, the odds are crazy. There's a slim chance of survival, but God is awesome. Let's see what he's going to do. Living faith is just that way, isn't it? I'm not saying that living faith is not aware of the circumstances and situations of our lives. I'm not saying living faith is blind to the reality we live in. What I am saying is that living faith sees another reality as well. It's this huge variable called the Almighty God that living faith always accounts for and that is so easy to exercise out of the equation when we face situations and difficulties in life that are overwhelming. Living faith always says, let's not forget about that variable here. Living faith is not being crazy as if, as if the more crazy the situation, the more faith we're exercising, the more godly it's got to be. That, that's not what's going on here. As if spiritual maturity was just spiritual recklessness, that's not what the text is saying. As a matter of fact, Jonathan wasn't basing his actions on this kind of crazy blind faith. That's not what he was doing. Jonathan knew that God had promised to smite the Philistines through Saul's leadership, right? Jonathan knew that God promised to give Abraham and Abraham's descendants the land. Jonathan knew that God fought on behalf of his people. That's what the entire book of Judges and the Exodus was about. You see, Jonathan knew these things. This was not blind faith that the more crazy it seems, the more faith it exercises. No, Jonathan was not exercising blind faith. It was a grounded faith in the knowledge and character of God and the certainty of his plans. And Jonathan said, knowing all this, we are going to act. Faith is not doing the impossible, right? Faith is doing what God calls you to do, even if you don't understand why. I think so often in our culture, we can think that faith, because we detach it from, from rationality, that faith always calls us to do things that are just crazy and impossible. That's not it at all. Biblical faith is living with the certainty that God's promises and principles in Scripture are the right thing to do, even if it doesn't turn out the way we want it to. That's faith. And Jonathan said, God might do this, God might not do this. But what's the alternative? Stalemate? What's the alternative? Have the Philistines come around, rout us, and we're all wiped out? I'd rather roll with God being a living God who can deliver and do something crazy than do nothing. And that's what they do. Verse 13 to 15 records Jonathan and his armor bearer coming up out of surprise, blowing the element of surprise, saying, here we are. And the Philistines call them to themselves. And Jonathan says, that's God's sign. We're going to win this day. And that's exactly what happens. If you read verses 13 through 15, you find that, that Jonathan and his armor bearer, basically, it's a slaughter. It's an astounding slaughter. Uh, the, the Philistines panic, and there's even an earthquake. And the Philistines reason, hey, the gods are not with us. The gods are fleeing. The Hebrew God is here. And the rest of those verses recount how this battle goes. Let's contrast this, this vivid example of faith, this vivid example of confidence in God, contrast it with Saul, the king, who displays none of those. Don't get me wrong, Saul is, is not trying to be ungodly. Saul is not being this antagonist towards God. As a matter of fact, on the surface, he looks very fine. 
But in his heart, there isn't this desire to see God's glory made known. And so while even though the Israelites have won this battle, they are still struggling. And the author makes that clear. Look at um, the very end of verse, excuse me, look at verse 23 of chapter 14. And then we're going to look at verse 24. So verse 23 says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And then there's this note, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. In other words, the Lord saved them, and they pursued the Philistines. The Philistines didn't pursue the Israelites. The Israelites pursued the Philistines. But notice verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Okay, stop. If the Lord had just delivered them, the Lord had just saved them, why are the men of Israel hard-pressed? And here's where um, I, I think our translation doesn't do such a good job. If you have an NIV or a, a New King James Version, you're doing much better because it says, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day for or, or because Saul had laid an oath on the people. See, the ESV, which most of you are probably reading, says this, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul laid, on an, laid an oath on the people. The point is this. The text is saying the men of Israel were hard-pressed. The reason was because Saul put an oath on the people. In Saul's pride, in his self-reliance, he said, cursed is the man who eats anything until I've been avenged on all my enemies, okay? So the, the ESV doesn't go to do a good job of bringing that out, but the reason the people of Israel are hard-pressed, God works this amazing miracle, and here comes Saul in his self-reliance, in his pride, and says, that's right, and cursed is any man who eats until Saul has been completely vindicated on his enemies, when we operate on our own kind of instincts and our own reliance, we have a habit of turning God's deliverance into more distress. And Saul does this beautifully. So God delivers his people, and you'd think they'd rejoice. And here comes Saul, self-reliant, prideful. That's right. And curses any man who eats until I'm completely vindicated. As a result of that foolish vow, the rest of the chapter, and we won't go into it, but I'll just kind of read these out to you that you can look at at home, leads to military exhaustion. Why? The men aren't eating. They're fighting in a battle. What do you think is going to happen? They get exhausted. So verses 25 to 31, it records how the men are getting exhausted in fighting the Philistines. It leads to ritual transgression in verses 32 to 35. The men are famished. They start eating whatever they can, including animals with the blood in it. And by Torah, you shouldn't have any animal with the blood in it. So not only are they getting exhausted, they're starting to break the, the, the Torah. And then finally, it leads to the death of the man that God worked through, or it leads to almost his death that God worked through that day. Jonathan himself, Look at verses 36 to 46. The point is, Saul, in his rashness, became not, not, he was supposed to be the tool to deliver God's people. He becomes the tool of bringing more distress to their people. See, that reoccurring theme crops up in Saul's life. Again, Saul was not a corrupt, hard-hearted, mean, ungodly king. I don't, I don't, we don't want to paint that picture. For all intents and purposes, Saul looked like a good, kind of outwardly fine king. But he was merely establishing and maintaining an outward form of a devotion to God. There was no heartbeat in Saul for the things of God. If you're writing notes, write down chapter 14, verse 18 to 19. We see again as God, he, he calls for the priests to, to counsel, to seek what God might have to say, and then he blows them off. 
So he rejects the word of God. He only calls for it as kind of a ritual or formality. There's no sense of, I need to know what God says and I'm not moving until we know. It's, I need to know what God says. Oh, wait, the pressure's on. Forget it. I'm moving on. And then in verse 35, notice the author makes a comment and says that Saul, prior to this point, Saul has never erected an altar to the Lord. It says here, verse 35, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And he had been king for at least a year, maybe two, and never erected an altar to worship the Lord. Everything we see about Saul is that he just didn't have a passion for the things of God. He was happy to have the trappings, but it didn't have the passion in his heart. We need to wrap this up by taking a step back and looking at the larger life lesson and picture what we see happening in Saul's life. In a sense, Saul is a perfect fit for the Israelites because Saul is doing in chap- this, these chapters what Israel did in chapter 8. You remember that? When the pressure was on and the anxiety pressed in, what did the people of Israel turn to? They turned to desiring a king. In chapter 4, when the pressure came on and anxieties built up, what did they turn to? They turned to superstition. They turned to the ark as some kind of talisman. In a very real way, Saul is a perfect fit for the people of Israel. When the pressure comes on, the anxiety gets ratcheted up, Saul turns to the things he's most comfortable with himself, himself. We saw it nationally in the people, and now we're seeing it individually in the king. It's as if the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to make the point, look, a life of faith is going to be very different than than a life of of self-reliance and trusting in your own resources to save the day. The same question comes up that really we've been thinking about since September when the pressure's on in your life and the anxieties get ratcheted up, who do you trust in, right? What do you turn to? Because all of us experience it. We may not be the characters in Scripture here, but all of us experience hardship. All of us know what it is to have the anxiety turned up. Let me ask it this way. When your personal desires and the desires of God conflict, whose will is going to win in that moment? When your desires come in conflict with God's desires, whose will wins at that moment? When pressures mount, how do you escape? We have expressions like this in our culture all the time, right? You hear it. She eats her feelings, right? He shops his fears. They entertain their anxieties. What are all those expressions saying? That when something happens to us, whether it's anxiety or pressure or emotions, we turn to something to assuage ourselves. We turn to something to make us feel good. Whether that's food, whether that's consumerism, whether that's I just check out, man, and I don't got to deal with the hardship of this world, we all go to a king, We are all looking for a king that's going to tell us, it's okay. You don't have to worry about it. It's okay. And to the degree that that king is not the Lord Jesus Christ, to that degree, that king will eventually betray you. For Saul, what he turned to was religious observance, the quality of his armaments, and the strength of his might. And he found out time and again that those things failed them. Keep your finger in Samuel. Uh, Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. First book of the New Testament. 
Matthew chapter 7. And verses 24 and 27, this is Jesus speaking, and what he says is just, I mean, it's right out of what we're reading. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Notice this, notice this. Jonathan the son and Saul the father faced the same circumstances, the same pressures, but how each of them responded was categorically different. When the pressures and anxiety ratcheted up, Jonathan places trust in the God of Scripture. He stood on the promises given by God to his people. He looked upon the past of the biblical characters and and stoked his faith and acted on the knowledge that he had of who God was. By contrast, Saul became rash and and harsh, and disregarded the word of the Lord, and and, and all the trivialities of religious trappings that he had surrounded himself with, his heart came out. He didn't want any of those, and let the circumstance, rather than the creator, shape him. Now, keep in mind that on the surface, to all the observing Israelites, they looked identical. They had all the markings of the people of God. They had all the, the, the looks of the covenant people of God. They had equal opportunity to hear the word of God. They had the same blood in their own veins. Yet one, one had his heart gripped by a living faith and confidence and knowledge of the Creator, while another was just content to just reap the benefits of his peripheral association with the people of God. But when the pressures came, what was inside of them really came out. So let's look at kind of our success. We talked about Jonathan's success and Saul's success. Well, what about our success? This passage and these chapters really are trying to get at this idea of there's got to be living faith that fuels you. We will all exercise a kind of faith. The only question is what we exercise that faith in. So the question is, as we read this, what most of us will do is say, well, which one am I? Which one will I be? Will I be Jonathan or will I be a Saul, right? We, we tend to think that way when we read the Old Testament. But chances are we're not either one or the other. We're probably the people of Israel caught in between these two extremes, just kind of watching how these two play themselves out. Now, the reality is we say, well, I want to be Jonathan. That's who I want to be. But if I'm going to be honest, I'm Saul, and I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to go from, I do appreciate what I enjoy from being connected to God, but I don't know how to go to this active, dynamic, living faith. And it it just seems life is too hard, the pressures are too great, and the cost is too high. But notice, even the Israelites, they themselves had to make a similar choice, didn't they? Look, back in the text in chapter 14, uh, verse 45, they had to choose against the king for Jonathan the son, because what had happened was when the king put the curse down, Jonathan didn't hear that, and he ate honey, and he was doing, this is great, and when they found out that Jonathan had broke the curse, the son had to die, 
And so Saul, at least he was consistent, said, well, son, you broke the curse. You must die. And, and Jonathan says, okay. But the people intervene. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. Okay, to defy the king in ancient culture was on pain of death. These people, these Israelites, why do they choose that? Why, why do they defy their king? Why risk his wrath? I mean, he's proven to be a little unstable. This guy does not make wise decisions. Why get in his way when he himself was willing to put his own son to death? Why challenge the king's wrath? And this is it. I think because it became clearer and clearer in the minds of these Hebrews, at least at this moment, it became clear to them as a, that Saul looked to his own resources and his own instincts, and it kept leading the people to ruin. But when they looked at Jonathan, the son, who looked to the Lord, even if in his own obedience to save God's people, it would cost him his life. Verse 43, when, when Saul said, okay, you broke my curse, you, you need to die, Jonathan didn't fight. He said, if that's the oath, then here I am, I'll die. And the people saw this young man. And the difference between he and his father, my son's calling me, sorry about that. <laughs> he knows better. He knows I'm preaching. I bet you he did that on purpose because he knows I answer phones when I preach sometimes. <laughs> you see, the people looked at Jonathan. They looked at Jonathan as this son, the son who against all odds eagerly set out on a rescue plan to save God's people at great risk to himself, to deliver the people of God even if it cost him his own life and he was willing to pay the price. When they saw that, it changed their hearts. They said, this is what living faith is. When they saw that the son was willing to die on their behalf, it changed them radically. Now, maybe some of you are already connecting the dots. But, but Jonathan would be like another son who would come much later, who would eagerly, in, in contrast to Saul and Jonathan, talk to his father and said, I'll set out on a rescue plan. I will risk my life for the people of God. I will do what it takes to save the people of God. You see, the Hebrews risk the wrath of their own would-be king and their own desires when they saw how loved they were by the son. They were willing to risk the wrath of their own desires and their own king when they, really, when they realized how much the son, Jonathan, loved them. Folks, when we truly realize, truly realize how loved we are by Jesus Christ, how really loved we are by Jesus Christ, when even we were sitting there propped up with our propped up kings, living for our own desires, says, I will risk my life and deliver the people of God because I love them. When you really realize that's how you're loved, it changes you radically. It changes you dramatically. But it's only when we realize that kind of love shown to us. You see, God's people win, not because they fought the battle, not because they were brilliant, not because they were gutsy. God's people win because they realize how much the Son loves them and how much the Son was willing to risk it all to deliver them. I hope you think about that this week and reflect on your own love for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we see in a passage that's just talking about warfare really leads us to the foot of the cross. Jonathan, 
unknown to him, was giving us a picture of what Jesus would do thousands of years later. I pray that we would be like the people of Israel who see how loved we are by the king's son, that he would risk his life, that he would give his life so that we would be delivered. Our lives don't have to be a constant stalemate, but there can be victory in Christ. Father, would you make that truth sing in our hearts this week? We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The message titled Success was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.